So now, brothers and sisters, if you want to open up your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5, we will be picking up starting with verse 21 and reading all the way through the end of verse 33. This can be found on page 1162 if you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you. And in what we're about to read this morning, in, in this passage, chapter 5, 21 through 33, uh, it's... What we're about to read, it's one of the most famous, or maybe you could even say infamous, passages of the New Testament, and it's definitely one of the most infamous or famous passages on the subject of marriage, both in uh, what it's for and how it's to be lived out. That's what this passage is going to teach us. And while it's certainly not a comprehensive or complete teaching of all that the Bible has to say on this subject, it's unquestionably one of the most profound or beautiful passages on the subject. despite the fact that by some it is very contested, maybe even despised. And so I think that given these minefields, what this passage affords us then this morning is the perfect opportunity to reflect, even before we read, on how we approach Scripture. Now, this would require a whole lecture in and of its own, maybe a series of lectures, and we don't have time for that this morning. But the major question here before us is this, with what attitude do we come to Scripture? As we read God's Word, any portion of it, on any subject or any part of the story, what should the posture of our souls be before it? It seems to me that in the broader Christian world, there are a multitude of different approaches to reading God's Word. And so if we had to, I think we could succinctly summarize these with four different approaches and four different attitudes. And so I've tried to distill these uh, here and how people might come to God's Word. So there's approach number one, where somebody might say, as God's perfect Word, I receive it with absolute and humble submission, never for a moment even questioning my initial interpretation of it. And so this is sort of the, the way of approaching God's Word, like that old classic song from about 50 years ago. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And this is the view then of what we might call fundamentalism or much of conservative evangelicalism. And I would suggest that while there's something, there is something to commend in this view, it's ultimately problematic because it sort of ironically places uh, the weight and too much trust in the interpreter, him or herself, as they read. And so the second approach, which I'll be cards on the table here with you, is the approach I'll advocate, is this. As God's perfect word, I receive it with absolute and humble submission. So similar to the first But I try to make every effort to question my initial interpretations of it so that I can be assured my understanding of it and thus my obedience to it is in line with what what it is actually saying. 
So God speaks and I listen, but I do all that I can to understand Him as truthfully as possible. Sometimes, if need be, questioning my own initial take on it so that I may bring my view into closer alignment with His Word. I would argue that this is, for the most part, the historic view of Christian orthodoxy, of historic Christianity. And I think what what commends this view is that it walks a proper balance between Submission to God's Word. It's God's authoritative, perfect Word, and so we ought to listen to it humbly, but it walks this balance with a, I think, a good measure of self-distrust, knowing as a totally depraved, sinful human being, I need to question myself as well. And so there's this interesting dialectic and balance. Now, the third approach would be something like this. As God's imperfect yet real word, I receive it with humility, but given my doubts about some of its reliability and its adequacy to address a modernity, I, like Jacob wrestling with God, try to wrestle with it until it blesses me and can be understood in a way that fits with what I otherwise believe is good and true. And so the person here might say, God speaks and I listen, but I try to discern his voice in Scripture because there, I know that there are going to be parts of it that really conflict with who God really is. And so the, the person who feels and thinks like this may sort of have a preconceived set of who God is, and so they're going to try to read all of Scripture through that filter, which there's something about that that I think is uh, true of of all Christians. We all read Scripture somewhat in that way, but I would suggest that that's the wrong approach, mainly because it fundamentally asserts that certain traits of Scripture or of God's character discerned in Scripture can be perfectly understood and known with certainty, but that others then have to be read through that filter of what can be known for certain. The question then becomes, how do we know anything for certain? And so I would say that this is probably the view of left-of-center moderates, uh, so not, I would say, radically progressive Christians, uh, but it would be the view of much of the mainline Protestant world. Uh, so that would be certain denominations, sort of the leading Protestant denominations like the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, the United Pre- Methodist Church, and so on. The fourth approach then, which differs from all of these in some serious ways, would suggest this. As a human record of God's supposed involvement with humanity in ancient days, I do not receive it humbly, but merely as interesting information, as I generally find its teachings to be not only historically inaccurate, but also metaphysically and or morally untenable, given what we know today. And so this person may say, God may or may not speak to humans. We can't really know. Therefore, we can't really verify or prove either way what he is saying to us or what he has said to us. And so this would be the view of a growing number of ex-Christians, those who have completely left the faith entirely, or of some, I guess you could say, radically progressive Christians. And I would say from a sort of Christian orthodoxy standpoint, this is problematic for, for many ways, I think, but most fundamentally because it denies the fact that God is able to speak meaningfully and clearly at all. And so it undercuts all of our understanding of who he is. And so I don't think we can even legitimately call this a 
Christian approach to Scripture at all, whereas the other three, I think, fall uh, more or less close into that category. And so given this layout of different views, I I do want to say that a lot more could be said here, of course, and I could spend a whole Sunday school class on it if I wanted to. But for our purposes this morning, again, I'd like to commend us to that second approach, to come with the posture of humility before God's word and knowing that it is absolutely good and true and beautiful, but also at the same time questioning our own presuppositions that we bring to the text, our own assumptions or maybe what we might think of as our default settings that we all bring as we read it so that we may listen to it humbly and receive it as his word. And so we should come to it. We should come to this passage and not just to my words or to my sermon, uh, but to God's word with a settled measure of trust, trusting that what he says for us is good, it's for our best, and that As such, we need to listen to him faithfully, even if it doesn't quite make sense in some similar ways to God's call to Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. It didn't make sense, but in faith, he followed through anyways. And so with that, let's pray as we dive in. O Lord, we know that your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so therefore now, as we come to our reading this morning, O Lord, we ask that you would make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation, that as the rain does not return empty, so neither may your word, but instead accomplish that for which you have given it to us. Amen. And so now, brothers and sisters, hear from the word of the living God from Ephesians 5, verse 21 and following. And you'll note that, uh, like with last week, I've slightly altered verse 21. Actually, my translation is the translation of the NIV or the RSV or the NASB. And so hear the word of God. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the Lord is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's famous book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and if you haven't, you now have some homework that you need to attend to, you may recall the sheer amount of joy brought to your heart with the words or the recollection of the words from Mr. Beaver early on in the story as they have just entered into Narnia when he tells them Aslan is on the move. Now, Lewis, the narrator, goes into an interesting bit of reflection then. He breaks from the narrative part of the story and begins to do some psychological understanding of what these words uh, did inside each of the four children's hearts, the Pevensey children, the main characters of the story. Each of them had an unmistakable sensation well up within them, we're told. It was somewhat of a mixture between pure joy or excitement, thrill, happiness, awe, and even for one of them, for Edmund, a sense of fear, of terror, knowing that he was coming. But although they didn't know who this Aslan was, they felt something with these words. They knew deep down that this Aslan character was about to change everything, that the world of Narnia, as they had quickly come to know it, was going to be revolutionary, revolutionary change. It's going to be flipped upside down, as it were. And indeed, it did. Aslan's coming turned Narnia right on its head. And as we get a glimpse of this, then, uh, about a chapter later, uh, when the strange showing of Father Christmas appears. It's interesting that you're in this world of Narnia where there's all these fairy creatures, and then all out of nowhere, Father Christmas, or as we in America know him, Santa Claus appears. And he, like the angels of the first Christmas, with, with their glad tidings of great joy that they sang, he gleefully announces, I've come at last. The witch has kept me out for a long time, but I have got in at last. Aslan is on the move. So he repeats what Mr. Beaver has said. The witch's magic is weakening. So Father Christmas had been held at bay, as we're told in the story, for 100 years during what was called the Long Winter, in which it was said to have never been Christmas, but always winter. And so now he'd gotten in. Aslan's appearing was changing things. The witch, the queen, uh, her power over the realm of Narnia was beginning to weaken. Aslan was coming and things were changing. And we see this then in the very next chapter after Father Christmas appears and announces this. We see this with the coming of spring. The snow begins to give way and melt. And now in its place we see flowers growing and the grass breaking through. And so in a lot of ways, of course, what Lewis is depicting here is the coming of Christ and its impact on the world. At his first coming, we're told throughout the New Testament that his eternal kingdom was coming. It had been kicked off, as it were, or it had been inaugurated, but not yet consummated. Thus, we rightly say of his eternal kingdom that it is already, but not yet. There is still a sense in which his kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. And this is the grand and mysterious wonder of the New Testament's depiction of all reality, that God is 
in Christ, the crucified and ascended King, the one to whom we've now been united and made to be one flesh, this King is building his kingdom now here on earth in our midst. And he is then dispelling the darkness, the reign of darkness, and bringing in his reign of light. And so this is the story of Jesus. We might say then that Jesus is on the move even now. And all of creation has not been, nor ever will it be, the same. It has fundamentally shifted now that he is coming. The war is on. The insurrection has begun, as it were. The snow is melting. The grass is breaking through. The flowers are growing as he retakes his throne. That's the message of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it's also, in many ways, the message of the book of Ephesians. Out with the old, you might say, and in with the new. So as we've seen over the past few weeks now, Paul has been contrasting life in this world, what life within Gentile paganism tends to look like, with what life in the kingdom of God ought to look like, the ideal of what it ought to look like. And he's doing this in order to show the brilliance of the light of the kingdom of Christ in this new age. And so this then is how I think we can make sense of chapters 4, 5, and six even. They are Paul's apostolic laying out or unpacking of Christian ethics or of kingdom life as God retakes his rightful throne. And this is why the entirety of the book is drenched, as we've seen in language of spiritual warfare. God is fighting against the forces of darkness. This book then is a trumpet blast against all of this. But perhaps you're wondering then, okay, what does all of this have to do with this passage on marriage? What does it have to do with this passage that seems to be about love and about husbands and wives and how they ought to fit together in this relationship? Well, in many ways, this morning's text is... uh, somewhat seen by ancient historians or historians of the ancient world as being something like a household code. That's what they call it, a household code, which was a common sort of instruction manual written in the ancient world by different philosophers who would sort of put forth how they thought life should look in the household of the ancient world. And this would include then, as it does here in Ephesians 5 and 6, uh, instructions to husbands and wives, instructions to children and how parents should raise their children, but also how the relationship between master and slave even should look like. And Paul even gets to that in chapter 6. And so whether or not Paul is giving his own riff on these kinds of household codes, what's clear, I think, is that in writing these his these instructions, he is intending to sort of re- uh, refresh or break down in some ways and build up in other ways the the ways of life in his world. He's wanting to show how marriage and parents and even masters and slaves or employers, you might think, uh, work together in this new kingdom. And so to do this, he engages in a bit of what we might call iconoclasm and indigenization. Now, these are Two strange words, iconoclasm, indigenization, not something we talk about or words we use very often, but they, they come, I'm using them from an RCA, Reformed theologian named Todd Billings, who uses them in order to express how the gospel, whenever it arrives in a new culture, has two effects. 
On the one hand, it iconoclasts, or it smashes, it calls to mind this word, uh, the idea in the church where people have broken down idols or icons, uh, false icons depicting God. And so it has this idea of smashing something. Quite literally, that's what it means. And then indigenization brings to mind this word of indigenous tribes, maybe you might think of. And so what this means is the way that the gospel also doesn't just smash things, but it also encourages things or supports ways of life that are common in that culture. It undergirds them even, and it it protects them and encourages them. And so to put this all as simply as possible, we might say that when the gospel arrives in a new place, in a new culture, it does two things simultaneously. It says to some things, no, and here's why not. And it says to other practices or customs, yes, but here's why. And so in doing this, it, it, it smashes some things and it supports some things. And so this, I think, is what's happening here in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is smashing some cultural norms surrounding marriage, and he's supporting or affirming others. And so in essence, he's saying some of the norms of marriage in our Greco-Roman world need to be tossed out and scrapped entirely. We need to get rid of some things. While other norms in our culture are actually quite good and need to be held on to. But now, in a deeper and more profound way, with a deeper understanding as to why uh, God has designed things the way that they are. We no longer need to just be following these good cultural norms just because they happen to be good. But he wants to show them why those things should truly be seen as good. And so what norms then does Paul smash? And what norms then does Paul uphold and support? So we'll start with what he supports. I think that that'll be a more positive way to look at this. Because it's really one thing. Paul supports the ancient or cultural norm of wives submitting to their husbands. He says this is a good thing. But even as we say this, we need to keep in mind that he's not endorsing the practice wholesale. He's not suggesting that everything about the way the Greco-Roman world uh, thought about wives submitting to husbands was completely perfect in every way. What he's doing instead is affirming the basic principle at work here, not all of the particular ways in which this was actually put into action and lived out. And so this is why in verses 22 through 24, he grounds his approval or his support of wifely submission, not in an ancient Greek or or way of thinking, not in philosophical worldviews that they had at the time. He grounds it instead in the mystical union of Christ and his church. He writes, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That is, not in the sense that we should should submit to husbands, absolutely, wives, the way we submit to our Lord, but in the sense that as part of your submission to the Lord, you will also submit to your husband in an earthly, appropriate way. Your submission then, as wives, is not so much to your husband as it is to God through your husband. And he goes on again, grounding this ethic in the union of Christ and the church. So we can read from verse 22 and following, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so in all sort of facets of life is what that means. So keeping in mind then that this all then comes under the umbrella of verse 21, where we're all told to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is all Christians. What Paul is getting at here then is something that would have been deeply stunning in the ancient context. Namely, that the design of marriage, a design which everyone would have thought that they understood full well, was actually not just something that happened to develop over the course of time, but was something that God himself, in his wisdom, had designed as a mystery, if we want to borrow the language of verse 32, as a mystery through which he would reveal something. He would reveal the beautiful love and relationship that existed between Christ and and his bride, the church. So therefore, Paul draws a line between husband and wife on the one hand, and Christ and the church on the other, and the head and the body analogy. And so in verses 22 through 24, the part addressed to wives, he interestingly emphasizes the distinction between head and body. Whereas in verse 25 and following, written to husbands, he emphasizes the unity between head and body. And you can think about it. Our, our head is somewhat distinct from our body in some ways, but in other ways, it's fundamentally a part of our body. It is just one aspect of our body. And so commenting on this interesting tension in the text, my old seminary professor, Michael Allen, says this, marriage brings about a one-flesh unity though that flesh exists in differentiated harmony. So for the wife, then, this differentiated harmony entails submission or subjection, a posture of willful respect and honor. Whereas for the husband, it entails one of love, a posture of Christ-like sacrifice and self-giving. And so an undergirding and reestablishing the essentially good principle of wives submitting to husbands, Paul totally reorients the principle. He grounds it no longer in mere custom or tradition or convention, but grounds it in something far deeper and far more beautiful, the relationship between Christ and his church. But before we think that this is the golden ticket for husbands to turn into tyrants who then operate under a reign of terror, we'll only need to continue reading to see that Paul now transitions from indigenization, from supporting, to iconoclasm, to smashing. So here in these verses, we see him busting out his hammer. In other words, it's time for him to get to work. And so in verse 25, he urges husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then similarly, in verses 28 and 30, he continues writing, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. In the ancient Roman world, everything in these verses would have sounded completely astonishing. It would have sounded... uh, it would have sounded brand new. He, he says to the, to the wives something that they would have understood, but he says something to the husbands that would have changed their views on things. And calling Christian men here to love their wives in this sort of sacrificial way that emphasized the husband's union with his wife, 
And by giving themselves up for their well-being, Paul was smashing or breaking the conventional way that husbands typically would treat and think of their wives in the ancient world. But to see how he's doing this, we have to consider what marriage was was looking like back then, what it, it felt like back then, how it was practiced and thought of, because it was drastically different in, in many ways from what marriage looks like today. Marriages, for one thing, were seen as something that was mainly just about the union of two families. And so they were typically arranged marriages. It was customary then for husbands and wives to never have met, to never have talked before, but they meet each other on the wedding day and they are doing this because it was arranged. They had little contact, if any, before the day. And in addition to this, basically all girls who became wives in the ancient world, were getting married for the first time between the age of 12, 12 and 17. Often, though, the sort of median age would have been about 14 or 15 for girls to be getting married. As basically, it was seen that as soon as a girl has her period, she was fit for marriage. Men, on the other hand, later in life, typically sometimes, or typically were getting married sometime between uh, 18 and 30, but if not much later, much older than that. And so this means that in general, in marriages in the Greco-Roman world, the men were often significantly older. In fact, one historian goes so far as to note that in Egypt, which was a part of the Roman Empire at this time, he has discovered uh, copies of note record keeping that suggest that it was about one third of all marriages where the husband was 11 to 30 years older than the wife. So think about this for a second. Not only was this sort of morally questionable, or is this morally questionable to us today, it also had a profound effect on what marriages looked like and how they typically went, what it felt like to be married in this day. So for one thing, because there was no birth control or contraceptives, as soon as two people were married, it was quite common for the wife to quickly become pregnant. And so as a early teenager, she would become pregnant. And often by the time she hit her 20s, she would have had three, four, five, maybe six children already. And so because Also, pregnancy and childbirth and labor were so fraught with complications prior to the rise of modern medicine. Uh, This meant that women's life expectancies were greatly reduced, much lower than men. And it was somewhere in between 20 and 30 years old. You could live longer, but that was typically about the time your body would begin to give out. If you were a a wife, you have probably at this time given birth to so many children that you are now suffering from uh, iron deficiencies, from anemia, and from bleeding. You may have lung issues from the heavy burdens of repeated labors over and over again. And so it was often the case that by your mid-20s, you would begin to to be weakened and to be bedridden and then to die. It was a brutal, brutal experience. And so as we think back to our text and what this then means for our reading of Ephesians 5, here's how New Testament scholar Stephen Baugh colors all of this in for us. He writes this, of the wives to whom Paul speaks in Ephesians, some were 15 years old and nursing their first or second child with husbands, 10 to 30 years older than themselves. Others were 26 years old. 
average age or the age when an average woman in the United States first gets married and were in ill health with emphysema and chronic lethargy after delivering their fourth, fifth, or sixth child. Some of the older wives were in their late 30s and enjoying being grandmothers but living in the households of their brothers or sons or nephews as widows. A common fate then for when, when your husband is so much older, he would often die and leave the, the wife to have to fend for herself or move in with a, a relative, a male relative. Hence, he says, Paul exhorts husbands to live in a self-sacrificial manner their child brides, or to love, excuse me, in a self-sacrificial manner their child brides, who were often laid up in bed one week or longer every month from anemia and other common health problems in antiquity or with pregnancy complications. And so if we add all of this together, our passage then, I think, begins to make a lot more sense. Given that marriage was more of a social arrangement than a love relationship, and given how brutal and difficult the lives of women were in these days, it was not very common for husbands to have a very high regard for their wives as an equal partner. They were often just seen as property or as maybe at best the day-to-day managers of one's household. So the husband could go off and do what he was doing, and he would leave things to the home, to the wife, to manage them. And even if they died, even if these wives died, husbands would simply, if they were still young enough, go out and find another wife and get married once again. And so in stark contrast to all of this, Paul's words hit the mark. Husbands, he says, love your wives. Give yourselves up for her. Love her like you love your your own body because that's what she is. She is one flesh with you. Nourish her, he says. Cherish her. Die for her. With these words, he iconoclastically smashes the selfish ways of ancient custom, calling husbands to a totally new ideal, one that attests and points in all things to the self-sacrificial love of Christ on the cross. And so as Christians, our lives are not our own. And while this is absolutely true both for husbands and for wives, it's the unique calling of husbands to live this conviction out as it pertains to their wives, to give everything for them, to die for them. It's part of what we might think of as the dramatization, the the enacting of what marriage is that points towards the real thing, Christ and His church. So Christ gave Himself up for us, Husbands are to do the same. Therefore, as we've seen through the mystery of marriage, Christians reveal and act out the glories of the gospel on the cosmic stage before God and man as well as before the creatures of the spiritual realm. In other words, as we've seen, Aslan is on the move. And through our lives and even through our marriages, we bear witness to the coming kingdom of Christ and God. And so in order to narrow or maybe in some ways even broaden our focus, and as we turn now sort of to the final lap of our journey together this morning, I've decided that I would give six theses, as I'm calling them, or brief lessons on marriage based upon Paul's words here in chapter 5. This allows us to sort of touch on some of the main issues at play here in this text. And so the first one, the first thesis is this. Marriage, by God's design, is both egalitarian and complementarian. 
So these are words that get thrown around a lot in the church today, words that cause a lot of debate, especially in regards to uh, women in the church and offices of ministry and also at home. And in essence, uh, this word egalitarian refers to the idea of equality, uh, whereas the word complementarian, which is actually an invented theological word, uh, hints or emphasizes at the complementarity or the way in which men and women are different yet fit together. There's a fitness for each other as if they fit hand in glove. So there are a great deal of debates, of course, about this in our, in our church today, not just in the Christian Reformed Church, but in the church more broadly. But I do believe that our passage teaches both of these ideas in different ways. Women are indeed equal. And the passage uh, recognizes this that for, for not, not, no other reason than the fact that wives are addressed first, which actually would have sounded quite crazy in the ancient world for Paul to specifically address them first, to put them before husbands. But he also calls them the husband's own flesh. The husband is to see himself as equal, as united to his wife. And yet, at the same time, Paul addresses these two parties as husbands and wives. He, he, he calls them by name and he addresses them according to their unique vocations before one another and before the Lord. And so if we listen closely then, we can also see that this is grounded, again, not in custom, but in God's creational design, his intent, his, his way of putting things together. And so this leads us to thesis number two. Marriage is an archetypal sign of Christ and the church. Archetypal, sort of a strange word, but it's a way of suggesting or pointing forward to something else. And so all along, we can say God's intention for marriage was for these relationships between men and women to point forward or indeed upward to the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. And this is why in verse 32, Paul calls it a mystery. A mystery, of course, which has now been revealed to us in Christ in his first coming and will be completed fully when he comes again in glory at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so this is what our marriages then are all about. This is what the whole concept is all about. This unique covenantal relationship exists to point us and all of creation to the unique covenantal relationship that exists between Christ and the church. And that's why in verse 31, where Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2, he draws our attention to the idea of a husband and wife becoming one flesh. All throughout Ephesians, this has been the whole point. We are in Christ. We are united to him. We are all joined as one flesh now with Christ. That is what the church is, one flesh with him. All the way back in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10, Paul told us that God in Christ is now making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
So this idea of a mystery being revealed is one of the major ideas throughout the book of Ephesians. We see it in chapter 1, we see it again in chapter 3, and now we see it here in chapter 5. Marriage, in a sense, is a participation in this mystery. It is a mystery in and of itself that points forward to this mystery of Christ and the church. And so it's a profound mystery, and praise God, we might say, that it's now been revealed to us in the church. And this leads to to thesis number three. And I'll try to get through these as quickly as I possibly can. Marriage, we could say, is between husbands and wives. And this is a simple point, but it's an important one to make. Marriage is designed to, to show, to archetypically, archetypically point towards Christ and the church. And if that's the case, then it's between Christ as the bridegroom and his bride, the church. And so within this passage is the implicit assumption that marriage is between two different yet complementary complementary parties working together. We might say then that God did not save God, but God saved man sacrificially. He saved the church. And likewise, man or the church does not worship or honor the church, but instead worships and respects and honors God. And as I quoted my professor earlier, marriage is a one flesh unity that exists in this differentiated harmony. And so our bodies, beautifully designed by God as male and female, point to and speak to this grand reality. Though each are different and beautiful and unique in their own ways, their very design bears witness to this, to this grand mystery. So now thesis number four. Marriage is about callings, not roles. And this is simply to say that the whole idea of referring to gender roles, I find uh, deeply wrong, deeply uh, questionable. And the reason for this, though it may just be semantic, and maybe I'm being a little too nitpicky, is that when we think of things as roles, we begin to think of marriage as in a way that is conditional. I will fulfill my role as husband or wife so long as my husband or wife fulfills their role. And so then we're constantly looking over our shoulders, looking and saying, hey, well, they are, are they upholding their end of the bargain? If they're not, I'm not going to uphold my end of the bargain. Role language also gives us the feeling that, well, there are certain things that are only what I do, and there are certain things that are only what my spouse does, and I don't have to do those things. So there's no possible way in which, in, in any way, that husbands are to submit to their wives. That might be the thinking here. And there's no possible way that wives are called to die for their husbands. And so we just think, well, this is my box, this is my lane, and that is their lane, and so I'm not going to worry about that. Role language, therefore, I say doesn't quite explain what Paul is getting at here. Paul is not talking in a way that is conditional as if what you are called to do as your vocation before God in your marriage, uh, as if it's dependent upon what your spouse is doing. It's not conditional or unconditional. I would simply say it's aspirational. Paul is giving us the ideals of what a husband ought to really emphasize as he loves his wife, and even as he in some ways, yes, submits to her. And the same is true for the wife toward the husband as well. And so we might ask ourselves then, do I worry more about whether my spouse is doing what they're supposed to be doing than worrying about myself? Am I looking for the speck in their eye instead of thinking about the log in my own? The fifth thesis, 
Marriage requires wisdom for how to submit and love. It's interesting, isn't it, to consider that the Ephesian audience would have found Paul's words alarming and exciting in the exact opposite way that we do. They were told, or wives, submit to your husbands. They would have said, totally fine, totally normal, we get that one. But where Paul says, husbands, love your wives and give yourselves up for her, they would have said, hold, hold, hold on, Paul, wait a minute here. But it's interesting that this is now flipped, right? We now, in the modern world, see Paul's words addressed to husbands and think, yes, totally, absolutely, that makes sense. And it it should. That's a good thing. And I celebrate the fact that that sounds normal to us here. It's just interesting that it's flipped. And now it's what he says to wives that disturbs us or makes us feel uncomfortable. So what should we make of this? I, I think for starters, we ought to receive these things as the Ephesians would have themselves. With a certain degree of mystification, sure, we're allowed to feel like that, but also with a profound level of humility and respect. I think the Ephesians would have been able to see that God is calling us to something. And though we may not understand the logic behind it completely, we may not fully agree with it, I know what has been done in Christ changing my heart and my life. Now I want to listen to his word with, with, with humility. And so I will take what he says and follow it. But that being said, a word of caution is necessary on how we think about what submission looks like, lest we misunderstand the meeting and abuse it as it has often been done. And on this point, I'm thankful once again for the words of Dr. Ba, who, by the way, is a New Testament seminary professor from Westminster Seminary, California, which is a part of the, we're closely connected to the URC, the United Reformed Church, and the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He himself is in the OPC. And I bring this up to remind you that he is uh, himself a complementarian, one who holds to uh, sort of a traditional view of marriage and women's ordination, you might say. So he writes this, Frankly, I think the whole issue of submission is poorly discussed in the abstract. In practice, it does not look the same from one marriage to the next. How does a modern wife submit while retaining her God-given integrity as a fellow heir of life and fellow citizen with the saints? I think Paul answers that in Ephesians 5, verse 15. She submits with wisdom and careful reflection on biblical truths that bear on the issue. Ideally, this whole issue never becomes a problem or an issue between a man and wife when a godly husband lovingly cherishes his wife as Christ cherishes the church. But both wives and husbands must pray for and exercise wisdom in their submission and love. And so in short, what he's saying is that we need to be wise in how we think of these things. We need to be discerning, uh, not to abuse these texts, but also not to disregard what Paul says here as if it has no meaning or, or implications for us today. We need to be nimbly uh, listening to God's word, thinking through how we can be faithful in our day. And finally, this leads us then to thesis six. Marriage is an invitation to life through death. For both parties, for both the husband and the wife, marriage is, in a sense, a death. It's a death to the way life was before marriage. It's a death to a certain measure of personal freedom and liberty. And it's a death to ever again living a life where you're not accountable to or responsible for anyone else. And so we might say that each in their own way, 
Paul invites both the husband and the wife to die. Wives by submitting, honoring, respecting their husbands, and husbands by loving and sacrificing themselves for their wives. But of course, this isn't all just ho-hum and sad. Uh, Maybe I'm turning uh, turning young people in the church off to the idea of marriage, thinking, oh, I want nothing to do with that. That does not sound like a blessing at all. It's not just sad, though. Marriage is a celebration. Marriage is a great joy, a great gift. It's the forging of a new life together. So yes, it's a death, but it's also a life. And so we can even go further than this and note how marriage is the context from which God has designed uniquely life to come forward from, particularly through the rearing of children into the world. And as, the, and as they go, they are the living embodiment then of the, the love that exists between parents. And so marriage is a death, yes, but it's also a life, a new life together. And this is because, as we've seen, Jesus died for the church and gave his life for her. He also calls the church to die to herself and to pick up her cross and follow him so that she may, what? So that she may find it. Christ, the invitation of Christ is to die, that we may have life. It's not ho-hum and all sadness. It's actually more joy on the other end. And so as we conclude our time together now, we can do so by recognizing once again that God's word is good, even when it hurts, even when it iconoclasts some of the things in our lives. It smashes them. Both the calling of the husband and the wife are heavy and difficult. It's true, but they're good and they're beautiful and true as well. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.